A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. It's a grey day. Uh, it is a little bit cooler than it was before. There is going to be a host pipe ban uh, in many parts of the country, even though it did rain quite a lot yesterday. There's another amber warning out there. Uh, and for those of you who are trying to get into central London uh, today, there's a big fire uh, outside of London Bridge Station, which might be affecting your travel plans. We'll be going live to the site of that fire to let you know just how bad it is or how uh, not bad it is, to let you know uh, how likely it is that London Bridge Station, which is currently closed, uh, will remain closed for... We're going to be talking about a great many things, including uh, one supermarket chain, which is apparently offering people food on credit, which is a remarkable move. Inflation figures going into double figures for the first time in a very long time, which is unlikely uh, to be helping anybody uh, because a basket of foodstuffs, which has been analysed by one of the newspapers this morning, says inflation is actually running at around about 23%. We're going to be talking about cyclists this morning as well because finally it looks as though we might have a minor victory. Those of us who have been campaigning for many a year to make sure that cyclists are licensed, to make sure that they have registered their bicycles, to make sure they are in insured um, we have had so many fights so many issues with so many cyclists who say oh we don't want to be insured we don't want to be regulated we don't want to be uh, having to make registration plates because that would just disagree with everything that we stand for because we stand for freedom we stand for breaking the rules we stand for going through red lights we stand uh, for doing whatever the hell we like without ever being held accountable well now the jig is up ladies and gentlemen because cyclists are going to be made it looks like uh, to have registration plates to have licenses and to have identification uh, on their vehicles because let's face it there are more and more cyclists on the road and they need to be properly schooled in what to do and how to be responsible and if they do have an accident they need to be held to account all of which currently does not happen 0344 499 1000 we'll talk about the Royal Navy coming up as well Jamie Jenkins is here to tell us about the latest from the world of statistics where excess deaths are suddenly now being rounded down as opposed to being rounded up. Uh, we'll talk to Marc Francois, uh, who is supporting Liz Truss in the leadership election. That plus an awful lot more. Uh, over 65 rushing back to work. Theresa May's anti-slavery law now. Apparently the reason why so many people cannot be deported. We'll go back to the migrants issue later on as well. This is the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. This is, of course, Talk TV. Let's get it on. Welcome to Talk TV. Welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Let us go without further ado live uh, down to Union Street in London. Uh, it's southeast London. It's very close by uh, London Bridge Station, where an awful lot of trains go in and out from the southeast corner of this country down to uh, Brighton, uh, down to Kent, down to Folkestone, down to Dover, all sorts of places like that. At the moment, the uh, tra- the train station appears to be closed. Trains are not running. Uh, John Norman uh, is our Talk TV man on the spot. John, a very good morning to you. Yeah, good morning to you, Mike. Thanks very uh, much think... for uh, coming to it. Tell us what uh, you can see. Well, what I can see is essentially where you are. We're in the shadow, essentially, of the news building where 
that you are currently broadcasting, but just over my shoulder here on Union Street, uh, backed up really, uh, five or six uh, fire engines. I was actually on the way to Lords. Yes. Talk sports cricket correspondent. I was heading to Lords for the first test against South Africa. I was on the tube, but it was packed. You know, it was it, on the way into work today, it felt like people were getting back to work. No space on the tube. And I was in the final, final carriage. And as we were approaching Southwark Station, which is one along from London Bridge, the coach, the, uh, the coach started to fill with smoke. We could smell smoke. Being very English, nobody said anything. And then eventually it became so strong, people started talking to each other, saying, can you smell smoke? I can smell smoke. The doors opened. We looked down the, down the uh, passage, down the, uh, 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 down the carriage, um, down the platform, and the platform was full, full of smoke. Right. Immediately on the tannoy, there was nothing on the tube itself. People were starting to shout, there's a fire, get off the train. People were actually pretty orderly. There was no real panic. We made our way to the, uh, to the, to southern, to the roadside. There were a lot of very scared people there. And actually, somebody who reported on the 7-7 bombings for Talk Sport all those years ago, it brought back some pretty horrendous memories yeah, of that day, I, I can tell you. But there was women and uh, men and, and people outside, very shaken indeed. You know, the, the cabins at the front, the carriages at the front of the tube were really full of smoke. Somebody shouted out that there was a fire. It's very, very fortunate that there was, it was a, an ordered exit from the station. Southwark Station is now being cut cordoned off. Fire engines outside of that. Now, I saw the fire itself after speaking to people, and it was coming down the road. So I followed it down. It appears to be nothing untoward, which is obviously the first thing that comes to your mind. Thick, black plumes of smoke, though, coming out mm. from uh, a cafe just behind me. The road has been blocked off. The tubes have been stopped. Um, but thankfully, it doesn't look like it's anything more untoward than that. OK, thank you very much indeed, John. Well, I'm glad you're all safe and sound. And, and thank you very much for bringing us that live report from just outside of London Bridge Station, a place called Union Street. There appears to be a cafe uh, which has a fire ongoing. The underground obviously affected if you're in London. Uh, London Bridge Station also affected if you're trying to get into London, if you're wondering why you can't and why the trains are all being stopped. That's the reason. Hopefully, uh, the fire brigade will be able to put out the fire uh, in due course and everything can return turn to normal so we can also now uh, return to normal we'll check back in uh, a little bit later on with uh, our man on the scene uh, john norman who's on his way to lords as i say for the cricket uh, professor frank ferradi though uh, is here of course now author and sociologist frank apologies for uh, coming to you late but um, these things are always worth investigating because as uh, as we heard john norman say there it always brings back memories of of, uh, of all manner of things that have happened in london in the past and when, when when the tube suddenly fills with smoke i imagine it's quite a scary moment it is the most dangerous thing, uh, according to uh, disaster experts. They make the point that uh, people are usually quite well behaved in uh, difficult si situations. Yes. For example, when you have a bomb go off or when you have something untoward occurring. But the one thing they're really worried about is when there's smoke on the ground, because when there's smoke on the ground, that's when people begin to get a little bit panicky. And we have an example of this uh, about 10, 12 years ago, when there was a fire at King's Cross Station in London, yes, which led to a, a major stampede and uh, a lot of people getting hurt. So thankfully, in, in this situation, that didn't occur, which is really good news. Yes, I think people are a bit more kind of used to London 
in those situations now because of what's happened you know in the past and um we can come back to, to talking about that let's kick things off this morning though frank with uh, the cost of living inflation um we see that inflation is now reaching double digits for the first time in many a year but equally um the real level of inflation we think is probably closer to 20 percent i mean looking at um, uh, an illustration in the daily mail today as, as to how much individual things like butter and and baked beans have actually gone up they're they're saying it's the average um sort of rise is about 23 percent in a year it is and for example i'm a dog owner and i've noticed that uh, the price of dog food has gone up at least 25 percent during that time yes uh, uh, during the past year just about everything that uh, you need to buy to live, to eat, uh, to you know, basically to get on with life has substantially increased. And you're absolutely right to suggest that in terms of uh, the way it impacts on our pockets, uh, 20% rate of inflation is much closer to the mark than the official figures. And what I'm really worried about is that this is going to get a little bit worse because there's very powerful inflationary pressures coming from uh, outside of Britain, uh, global pressures in terms of energy, raw materials, food, all these things are likely to go up in price and then, you know, at, at a massive rate in the next 12 months. Yes. And I mean, I don't wish to pick on Theresa Villiers, but I don't know whether you saw my interview with her last week where she was singularly incapable of answering the question, what would Rishi Sunak do uh, to bring inflation numbers down? She couldn't tell me. Uh, she said he would be telling us in due course, but she couldn't say when. When I asked her, what she would do to bring inflation down. She sort of mumbled on something about the Bank of England working together, you know, making sure the mandate stayed the same. I'm not sure the politicians have a clue what to do here. I don't think they do, but then it's difficult to entirely blame them because many of the inflationary pressures are beyond political control, beyond government. You cannot really uh, account for the massive rise in energy price or or the massive rise in raw material and food. These are global pressures uh, that need that can be managed uh, and 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 you can have policies that make life easier for us so we don't feel the full impact of the inflation but the inflation itself is not something that you can magically wish away all that you can do is put a price cap on certain essential goods mm. and ensure that uh, especially the poor and people who are struggling are able to make ends meet yes an interesting piece in the mail again this morning talking about Iceland, the supermarket chain, uh, who are apparently going to offer food on credit for the first time. Now, some people might think that's helpful, but actually, in terms of an inflationary spiral, that, couldn't make, that could make matters a lot worse, couldn't it? It can, and, and certainly uh, myself, coming from a, a relatively poor family, when we used to struggle, one of the things that I was always uh, scared and worried about is my parents falling into debt. Mm. That was normal. You, you're continually on the never, never. And I remember every month, my parents would look at you know, the, the, the kind of the, the bills and the money that they had to pay out for borrowing. And you kind of have this extra burden uh, to bear as a result of that. And I, I'm not a big fan of uh, selling food to people on credit simply because it just makes life even more insecure. It, it seems like a really good a solution to a problem but it actually complicates matters later right. on well it does particularly if they end up getting those terribly sort of expensive loans to pay off the credit that they've got to buy their food and suddenly the spiral just gets worse and worse and worse and worse and and in terms of um the never never i've never been in favor either frank of the government just handing money to people so that they can continue to pay for things that they can't afford 
Yes, well, this is a, a very big problem because uh, if people get money just like that, then there's no relationship between you know sort of their behavior, their action, and 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 the consequences of that. So so they don't really realize that when you buy something, it's got to be a result of of your effort, of the work that you've done. Uh, and if somehow you begin to uh, just basically get money just like that, it means that you never really learn the importance of uh, making ends meet, of, of getting the balance right between uh, your spend and money coming through. And most importantly, the fact that in the end you have to make the effort yourself, uh, no matter what your circumstances are, in order to get the resources to live by. Yeah, no, absolutely right. We're going to talk a little bit about the migrant problem, uh, Frank, coming up in a little while. We're also going to talk about the blasphemy laws, because obviously in the wake of what happened to Salman Rushdie, lots of la- bla- uh, conversations about blasphemy laws coming under um, a lot of scrutiny at the moment. Free speech, of course. Um, Liz Truss as well, I want to ask you about. She says that UK workers should show more graft, like the Chinese. Um and given that uh, apparently last week's average working week included 2.1 days in the office, I think she might have a point. But stay with us, Frank, if you would. We're watching, as you can see, if you are watching with us here at Talk TV, uh, the smoke billowing out from this cafe fire just south of uh, London Bridge Station. It's closed parts of the underground system and it will be closing parts of the rail network as well uh, in the southeast region. Of course, Kent, Sussex, all of that being affected. So uh, if you need to know what's happening, just keep listening. We'll keep you updated with every single thing that we learn. Uh, you will know it straight away. This is, of course, Talk TV. I'm Mike Graham. Nationwide, by your side, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. We are monitoring a fire for you here uh, just south of the uh, London Bridge Station, south of uh, Talk TV Towers indeed. Uh, It should be uh, reasonably easy to clear up. It seems to be a fire in a cafe, but it has disrupted travel uh, for people who are trying to get to the cricket, apart from anything else. Also people coming into London uh, from the southeast, from places like Dover, uh, from Kent, from Sussex, from places like Brighton. Uh, It looks as though uh, London Bridge and Southwark stations are closed because of the fire alerts. There appears, as we heard from John Norman, to have been some smoke uh, leaking through the underground system. So that may remain closed for a while. So if you're trying to get anywhere, just bear that in mind. Uh, You may have to take a detour and get around it uh, above ground rather than under the ground, uh, as you will see. Frank Ferrady's here with us. Frank, uh, front page of the Times this morning has got uh, Rishi Sunak going back to the inflation uh, question, um, saying that basically um, Liz Truss has a moral duty to ease people's bills. I'm not very... Uh, uh, sort of comfortable, if you like, with with politicians talking about moral duty and trying to make out that, you know, such and such is the right thing to do. And he making out that he's morally right to hand money to people. It's our money he's given away. Let's not forget. Yeah, I mean, it's a difficult judgment call because uh, the debate about tax, the debate about uh, inflation, uh, how you help people is, is a very difficult one to get right for a very simple reason that you can fiddle around with, with the taxation system, mm. fiddle, fiddle around with price caps. But at the end of the day, there are these powerful pressures that can only be resolved through economic growth and economic uh, sort of stability. Mm. And I think very often we take our eyes off from the real problems, which is the fact that Britain suffers from low levels of productivity. Britain suffers from lack of investment in new technology and innovation. Britain suffers from the fact that we're not creating the kind of jobs uh, that are going to make the economy flourish in the long run. And we're simply looking for a quick fix solution, hoping that by fiddling around uh, with, with, you know, with the budget and handing money out, that problem will be solved. Mm. I know. To- 
it is incredible, isn't it, that um, that we are in this place where basically the only money that is available to the government is the money that they gauge uh, and gouge in some ways from us in order to give it back to us. Yes, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of these <laughs> tricks going on where you basically say, well, we'll give you a rebate, but oh, no, 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 we decide to target that rebate towards the very poor and you mm. kind of juggle around with, with the books. And if you look at the spending plans, they very often announce um, several times the same uh, sort of uh, plan to give money to certain kinds of people, uh, forgetting the fact that at the end of the day, you know, so those plans have already been announced and, 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 and have made very little impact. I, I would be very happy, much happier if the two candidates actually sat down and told us how they're going to get the British economy, you know, on its two feet again. Yes. That's the key thing, the key challenge for any politician. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. And of course, the other problem for an awful lot of uh, of people in this country is that there aren't enough um, uh, people to fill all the jobs that are required to be filled because of all sorts of reasons. But um, I'm told um, that statistically, 5.6 million people claimed universal credit in January, um, and many of whom would be claiming something around £500 a week, which might explain why they're not bothering to get jobs. I know this is something that is of direct concern to me because living down in Kent where you have uh, this big problem where fruit farmers and farmers growing vegetables are continually complaining about the fact that they cannot get enough people to, to kind of come work on the farm and you know pick fruit and and work as farm laborers and what they have to do is, is bizarrely is to uh, look for workers from 8,000 miles away from Britain to come to this country and to work on the farm. They're looking at not just East European workers, but people from Asia now who are coming on our farms to pick our fruit. And at the same time, you have a significant number of people living in Kent and in the surrounding area yeah. who are living on benefits. And I just think that there's a mismatch here. There's something really wrong here when we can't uh, sort of get our people to, to feed ourselves and to make money in the process instead of living off benefits. Yes, exactly right. Let's talk a little bit about the aftermath of Salman Rushdie's um, attack because uh, it would appear, thankfully, that he's on the mend, <clears throat> albeit that he's got life-changing injuries. Um, but there's been a lot of conversations about the blasphemy laws in this country and, and the rights that we have to be offensive to people who take offence uh, on account of whatever deity they believe in. Um, what's your take on, on the blasphemy laws and, and where we stand with those? Well, you know, if you look at history, the one thing that we're absolutely clear about is that any idea that was a really good idea, that any kind of creative, new, innovative idea was almost always denounced as offensive or as a form of heresy or even as blasphemous. And very often blasphemy laws are, are, are used as a way of regulating speech and cutting down on speech. And uh, it seems to me that one of the things that we learned from the past is that the very ideal of free speech evolved precisely because people were fed up with not being able to say certain things on the grounds that it was a kind of blasphemy. Um, and the unfortunate thing is, is that there are many groups who believe that if my views, uh, are, uh, if I express my views in a strong way, that somehow I'm offending them. So basically, they want to take away my right to express my view of the world uh, in order so that they can be protected mm. from offense. I think that's wrong, and uh, I think that blasphemy laws have got no place 
in a modern democratic society. Yes, I think that's right, because I think once you go down that road, it's very easy to find another group who are offended by something else that you might say, um, and suddenly it goes beyond um, whatever creed or belief system that you have, and it could become about anything. Well, you know, I get offended all the time. You know, whenever I hear somebody tell me to use my pronouns, or whenever somebody tells me that, that actually, you know, sort of uh, there's more than, than two sexes and there are hundreds of genders, when somebody tells me that, I, I get really angry, I feel really offended. But I, I'm also believe in democracy and free speech. So my reaction to that is, well, let's discuss it, let's argue, let's debate it, mm. rather than to put a, a kind of a, a verbal gun at their head and say, shut up, you're not allowed to speak. So I'm sure that you, Mark, as well, uh, you know, very often listen to stuff and you say, well, what the heck, what, what's happening to this world? How can they say such crazy things? Mm. I'm really offended, but you don't say, shut them down no. and they're in prison. No, I mean, I'm one of those people who wishes that everyone was relatively polite to one another. Um, I wish that football hooligans and football fans didn't make horrible chants. And I wish that, for example, some fans didn't make hissing noises when Tottenham Hotspur play and all of those things, which are quite horrible. But I don't wish to ban them from doing it. I just wish they'd stop. Exactly. I'm a Spurs fan, lifelong. There you go. Yeah, I got my... um, You must have been happy on Sunday. I, I was. It was a good result in the end. You know, it was very scary for a while, but it was a good result in the end. But you know, uh, people have tried to say, "Well, we got to ban the word Yido. Yeah, and they don't really understand that. You know, sort of, you might be offended by it, but people, you know, who are Tottenham fans, including Jewish fans of Tottenham, regard that with pride. Mm. For them, that's like that's who we are. Yeah. Therefore, what you got is a clash of two views about a word. And I think the only way you resolve it is you allow both sides to you know, kind of get on with their version of what they think is right. Yeah. yeah. No, I think that's absolutely right. Just one final thing. Uh, we've only got about uh, 30 seconds left, uh, Frank. The business of um, apparently Theresa May's anti-slavery laws, it turns out that having brought those in, it's being used now and abused by human rights lawyers to make it impossible to deport anyone, no matter what they've done. Absolutely. So anybody that comes to, uh, any migrant that comes to England all they got to say is, I've been, you know, sort of trafficked, and you're in. You know, that, that becomes like an automatic uh, sort of excuse. Yeah. A few years ago, they, they used to say, uh, I, I'm here and I'm, I'm gay, and if I go back to Uganda or somewhere I come from, I will be killed. So yeah. that was a very good excuse as well. And I think the courts in this country very foolishly accept these kinds of excuses. And instead of actually querying yes. it and realizing that trafficking... Fortunately, still fairly rare, and that most people that are migrants here are migrants, you know, rather than trafficked individuals. Yeah, I mean, again, the, the the system doesn't actually question things because the system believes everybody to be good, which of course they're not, and that's where the problem lies. Frank, great to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed, Frank Ferrady, a professor, of course, author and sociologist. There, talking about a great many things. We'll talk to all of you about matters arising from that. Coming next, though, uh, Mark Francois, MP, um, he's going to talk about the RAF recruitment chief who's quit because there's been a row over what is now being called an effective pause on hiring white men. Nobody's quite sure why. We'll find out. Coming next on Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. We're going to talk cycling coming up a little bit later on. Mr. Loophole is going to be here. Uh, Here's one from Stephen. When I'm a cyclist, I run red lights if I can see that it's safe. If they make us get insurance to cycle, I may as well just get a motorbike and ride it illegally. 
Well, that's probably the most stupid tweet I've ever seen, Stephen. I don't know why on earth you would want to do something illegal and indeed something that's dangerous. Hi, Mike, says Danny in Essex. I only use my bike to ride on the odd occasion in the summer with my young daughter. So for once, you have got it wrong. We don't need more regulation. Well, Danny, you might as well say, I only use my car at the weekend, so I don't really need insurance or indeed a driving licence. The point is... Cycling needs to be regulated in this country. More and more people are cycling. And I don't understand, and I wish somebody could explain it to me, why so many cyclists don't wish to be regulated, don't wish to have to prove who they are, don't wish to have registrations for their vehicles, don't wish to have insurance for their vehicles. Why not? What is wrong with being accountable and identifiable when something happens? Because if that's your view of the world, then you might as well say, let's do away with all regulations. Let's do away with all traffic rules. And I'll tell you what, there are going to be a lot of dead cyclists out there because you don't have uh, the most protection in the world. It's as simple as that. Let's talk to Mark Francois, MP. Uh, He's got lots to say about a great many things. Uh, Let's kick off, Mark, with the cycling situation. I'm only going to ask you one question about it. Why do you think cyclists are so anti-regulation? Well, I mean, you know, the road is there for road users, both in motor vehicles and for cyclists. You know, cyclists have had a great deal of money spent on new cycle lanes and all these other Mm. facilities, some of whom, to be fair, use them, others of whom don't. And I think what you just want is equity between cyclists and people who drive motor vehicles. Yes, I think that's fair enough and very well put. Uh, Let's move on to uh, the story on the front page of Telegraph this morning. RF recruitment chief has quit uh, because there's yet another diversity row. I mean, this is getting ridiculous, isn't it? Well, look, we all want to see more uh, recruits from BAME backgrounds in the armed forces. I've called for that myself uh, in the past. Uh, This is is based on a story that was broken by Deborah Haynes at Sky. I've known Deborah for years. In my experience, she's a very good journalist and she's rarely wrong. Mm. The essence of the story seems to be that the Royal Air Force have held back some white recruits from being what's called uploaded to training, from starting their training program, and have prioritised some BAME recruits instead, basically in order to make the numbers look good. Mm. That is that that's, if you like, the heart of the allegation. I serve on the House of Commons Defence Committee. I and some of my colleagues overnight have been trying to get to what the military call the ground truth about this. Yes. I'll be tabling a lot of questions as soon as the House returns in early September. But on the face of it, it does look as if the Royal Air Force have some serious questions to answer. Well, we've seen plenty of adverts, haven't we, for the Army over the course of time. We've seen stories about the Army, not so much the RAF, um, kind of becoming a bit more woke than they seem to to have used to be. Um, So this would not be at all surprising, would it? Well, there are, there are actually uh, even worse problems in the Royal Air Force training system. Perhaps I could briefly explain. There's a thing called the UK Military Flying Training System, or UK MFTS mm. for short. That is the system to train fast jet pilots to ultimately fly the Typhoon and the Lightning F-35, right? These are frontline combat pilots. It's run by a consortium called Ascent, who were led by Lockheed Martin and Babcock. It is a shambles. At the moment, it's taking up to seven years to train a fast jet pilot from scratch. If we had to go to war against Russia tomorrow, we haven't got as many fast jet pilots as we should have, because what a lot of these guys are doing is rather than wait up to seven years, they're bailing out 
and they're going to get a job with the airlines, yeah. particularly as air travel is recovering. What's really important is the Secretary of State for Defence, Ben Wallace, ordered the Chief of the Air Staff, Sir Mike Wigston, well over a year ago to fix MFTS. He gave him a direct instruction. For some reason, that instruction has not been carried out. For some reason, the Chief of the Air Staff didn't do what the Secretary of State for Defence told him to do. This is really, really serious because it affects the defence of the realm, mm. right? Remember, in the Battle of Britain, we never ran out of aircraft, but we nearly ran out of pilots. Yeah. So why is the Royal Air Force apparently disobeying orders from the Secretary of State for Defence? What's going on? Yes. Well, you might ask the same question the Royal Navy um, while we're on the subject, Mark, who yesterday declared that they would no longer be operational in the English Channel, uh, which I said for the first time means effectively that the Royal Navy is surrendering the English Channel uh, for people to come across uh, willy-nilly at their, uh, uh, at their leisure uh, to come to this country illegally. And I don't understand why the Navy were involved in the first place, but I also don't understand how they can suddenly just chuck it in and say we're not going to do it anymore. Well, our tradition, you know, <laughs> is that the military are under political control. Mm. Now, now, again, the Defence Committee in which I served, in fairness to the Navy, published a pretty highly critical report about that particular uh, operation, a thing called Operation Isotope, mm. because the criticism was all you were doing was running a more effective taxi service with a white ensign on yeah. the back. What we ultimately need to do is to clear these legal logjams and get the Rwanda flights going in order to break the, to break the business model of the traffickers. But what, I want to come back to this thing about military flying training. Yeah. And um, you may think I'm hammering them now, but it's extremely important. The House of Commons Defence Committee, which is an all-party committee, has underway an inquiry into air procurement. So this is the procurement of everything from fast jets to helicopters, and obviously it will look at training. We will, when we return, as part of that inquiry, I am sure, look very carefully at MFTS and what has gone wrong. And I think senior RAF officers are going to have to appear before a parliamentary committee and answer some pretty searching questions on why they know better than the Secretary of State for Defence. Yes. Let's talk a little bit about Liz Truss. You're supporting her to be the next Prime Minister. You think she's good on defence. Yesterday, uh, she was talking about the British work work ethic, even. Can't even say it. Uh, Let's have a look at it. British workers um, produce less per hour. And and that's a combination of kind of skill and application. And it's very, if you look at productivity, it's very, very different in London from the rest of the country. No, because this has been a historical fact for decades. Essentially, it's partly a sort of mindset and attitude thing, I think. Yeah, it's working culture, basically. If you go to China, it's quite different, I can assure you. You know, there's a a fundamental issue of British working culture. It's not... Essentially, if we're going to be a richer country and a more prosperous country, that needs to change, but I don't think people are that keen to change that. So I think there's a slight there's a slight thing in Britain about wanting the easy answers. And I think that's you know, that's my reflection on the election and what's gone before it. And the referendum is like we say it's all Europe that's causing us all these problems. It's all it's migrants that yeah. causing these problems. Liz Trust talking about the work ethic uh, in the UK. Um, she said that we should be more like the Chinese. Do you agree with her? 
Well, I think, look, politicians uh, of all colours for many years, right, have been calling for increases in British productivity. I mean, you know, I could give you quotes from Labour politicians who've been calling for productivity increases for years. So I don't think it's massively controversial for, you know, for a leading politician to say that we, we should try and increase the productivity of the British economy. I seem to remember you know, Tony Blair and Gordon Brown talking about productivity as well in the past. Yes, no, I think absolutely productivity is very much a problem at the moment. We saw a study this week uh, that last week, when it was very hot, uh, the average working week for people in offices uh, was 2.1 days which is simply not good enough. And working from home uh, is killing the economy as well. There's a big row going on about that because some people disagree with me. Um, But it might seem as well from some people's perspectives to be a bit rich uh, coming from a parliament which isn't opening for business again until the middle of September. uh, There's not enough work going on. Well, well, for for the record, the House returns on the 5th of September, Mike. Well, I call that the middle of September, Mark. Yeah, what, what the fifth? All right, yeah. okay. All right. Well, let's let's not get into semantics. <laughs> but but uh, um, it's the first week of September, I think, whichever way you cut it. Yeah. But but um, um, I think uh, you know suddenly this quote comes up. Now there's a leadership election underway. Uh, you know, Liz, according to the bookies, uh, uh, is in the lead. According to the polls, is in the lead. Uh, that's not to imply any complacency whatsoever. And suddenly someone comes up with a you know a five year old tape recording i mean i don't know where that tape recording came from apparently someone gave it gave it to the guardian but and you know and some people are desperately trying to make a big thing out of the fact that a british politician said it would be a good thing for the country if productivity increased well there you go yeah no i totally agree with you i don't even think it was worth playing to be honest but i blame my producer for that all right Uh, well you you know you've asked me the question i've attempted (laughs) to answer it um very good yeah, okay. All right. <laughs> Listen, no problem at all, Mark. Good to talk to you. We've got to run. Mark Francois, Conservative MP for Rayleigh and Wickford, and of course, a supporter of Liz Trust. We've got more coming up on the cycling front. I'm going to tell you what I think. I know what you think. I want to hear from you. This is Talk TV. On the app, on your mobile, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, right here on Talk TV, the place where you find the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Extraordinarily, uh, cyclists are up in arms, as usual. Guess why? They don't fancy uh, having to be held accountable for their actions. They don't fancy the idea of having to have licences and registrations for their vehicles. They don't like the idea of crashing into people and being identifiable. They don't like the idea of being held to account uh, for stuff that they might do. There are plenty of cyclists who do the right thing. There are loads of cyclists who do... uh, Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. 
They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Uh, uh, obey the law, the, play the, the game the way it should be played, but there are also equally plenty of what I would call extreme cyclists who love the idea of disobeying the rules, who love the idea of not going in cycle lanes, who love the idea of cycling across traffic uh, when they're not actually supposed to do it, putting themselves at risk, putting other people at risk. There's loads of cyclists who enjoy riding on the pavement. There's loads of cyclists who enjoy going down the one-way street the wrong way. Cycle lanes have destroyed most of the infrastructure of many cities in this country, and it's getting worse. So why not make it possible for an even playing field to be made available to everyone who uses the road, whether you're on an e-scooter, whether you're on an e-bike, whether you're on a motorcycle, a moped, an electric scooter, a, a motor car, a van, a lorry, a tanker. Everybody surely should have the same rules applied to them in equal measure. Surely that would be democratic, wouldn't it? Let's talk to Nick Freeman, who's an author, a commentator, a criminal defence lawyer, of course, as well. Nick, a very good uh, morning to you. Morning, mate. Now, maybe, as uh, I said earlier in the day, um, our attempt at getting a, a petition through Parliament so that they would at least discuss the possibility uh, of registration for cyclists and, and insurance and, uh, and, a, and possibly a licence plate, maybe it got to the right people after all, because it seems as though they're now thinking along the same lines as us. Without question, I, I have sort of liaised with two previous ministers of transport who have completely ignored it. And uh, you and I started a petition which which didn't have widespread support. Mm. But but clearly, we, we now have a government who, or certainly with Grant Shapps. I'm sorry. That's right. I'm sorry about that. Don't worry. We'll get that. We'll get that fixed. Have you got, have you got me back? We'll get you have back. You back? Um, I right. think we have. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, um, we, we've got um, a minister who's prepared to listen, and it, it, it's common sense. You can't have a growing body of cyclists who have no speed limit, no drink drive limit, no drug drive limit, and in essence, no accountability. Um, so you could have a perverse situation where we have all these 20 mile an hour speed limits unfolded on our roads, motorists slow down, and cyclists exceed them, and they're never brought to account. Mm. And you know, we're now, this last year, worst statistics ever for cyclists colliding with pedestrians, um, hundreds of serious injuries, um, one or two fatalities. So the, what, what we need to do is remove the friction that seems to exist between motorists and cyclists. Mm. There should be no friction. We should all say, look, we've got limited road space. We have limited funds. The infrastructure is poor for everybody. And we need to adopt a sensible approach that is collaborative, that works for everyone. And when you say to a group, you are not going to be responsible for your actions. That, that whole concept of collaboration breaks down. And, and there is probably a minority, but a significant minority, who are causing a serious threat to pedestrians mm. and to other road users, and of course to themselves. Yes. So, you know, what, what, what we, we have discussed and what we've called for and petitioned for is in essence just complete parity for all road users. And, and I have to say, Mike, I would also target pedestrians. And whilst I'm not suggesting for one moment they should wear a number plate or a registered tabard, I do suggest that there should be a consideration for legislation to enforce them in city centres to cross the road in designated areas and not to be allowed to cross the road listening to music, being on their phones or having headphones in their ears because they need to assume responsibility for their safety as well. So everybody is involved who uses this yes. limited space. And again, um, um, when people who are critical of these um, possible changes uh, 
you just have to point to any number of cities in America where they have jaywalking rules, which are quite strictly enforced. You can only cross a road where there is um, a traffic light. Um, And it works perfectly well. Nobody has a problem with it. But I'm amazed at the number of people, um, Nick, who have already this morning said to me, what what next? You know, you're going to have people being tracked wherever they go. You know, why do you want to enforce something which is unenforceable? It's extraordinary how many people who do cycle just don't want this. Well, uh, there, are awful, there are an awful lot of cyclists who actually do want it. I think it's the minority who are particularly vociferous. Yes. Um, uh, and their voice carries far more than the, the silent majority, as is often the way. Mm. Um, so, you know, many cyclists want to cycle but are frightened because of the dangers, and they would welcome the, these moves. And um, I, I've had significant support from other cyclists who say, look, what's being suggested here? And this has been suggested for a long time. Yes. Um, so they said this is going to increase the, uh, the safety of us on our roads. And um, who can ever criticise that? You know, I, of course, accept that you know, motoring doesn't have the, the same benefits that the green agenda has. Um, when you cycle, it's healthy, it's fresh air, all, all the obvious stuff. But at the same time, it's dangerous. And why would anyone say I should be excluded from legislation? You know, you know we've had a, a couple of cases recently where people have been killed by dangerous cycling. And there's actually... No law in place. And the cyclists say, well, look, it's so rare. Why should we have a law in place? Well, for those deceased, it's vital that they receive a sentence that reflects the gravity of their offence. And it also operates as a deterrent to cyclists who might feel inclined to cycle dangerously um, and throw caution to the wind in terms of the consequences. Mm. So instead of relying on 1861 legislation, we need to bring it bang up to date. Um, you know, motorists are now facing a life sentence if you kill someone when you drive dangerously. Why shouldn't cyclists? Yeah. It isn't the whole act. I'm, I'm going to cycle dangerously. I don't care about the consequences. God forbid you're involved in a fatal accident when you're doing that. You face the possibility of going to prison for the rest of your life. What is wrong with that? Yes. And, you know, offences of causing serious injury while driving, cycling dangerously, um, due care, um, minor due care, um, serious injuries. These are offences that need to be considered. And I'm sure Grant Chaps will give due consideration to this. And also, yeah, and the other other thing, Nick, is that for those people who say, oh, how are you going to do it? You know, how on earth are you going to make a registration plate available for a a bike? You know, we are now living in a digital age. It's entirely possible to put a QR code on something. You could put it on the person rather than the the actual vehicle. There's any number of ways of doing that. And the effect of making sure that people know that they can be tracked is that they presumably will behave better. Of course. When, when, just imagine taking number plates off cars. It will be mayhem. Yeah. Not with everyone, but some people. Because they're not being... We're suddenly saying, we can't actually trace you. Yeah. We can't track you. So we're now we're relying on your integrity. Um, and that's the, exist, that, that's the situation that exists with cycles. So a registered tabard. For me, it's important that there is a, a visible sign that can be easily read by members of the public. So if, if you, for example, are a motorist and you have dash cam, a dash cam, and you see a cyclist cycling dangerously, you can record it, and it's not just the cyclist cycling dangerously. You're going to have someone who's going to receive a notice, and if he doesn't respond to that notice, he's going to get six points on his driving licence or his cycle licence, and he's going to face a heavy fine. Mm. Um, And, of course, he's going to need insurance, etc., etc. So what we're saying is all of us who use the roads are now going to be accountable. We're going to be held to account. 
And, and whoop, whoop, there's nothing unreasonable with that. No one can seriously argue against it. No. And of course, yesterday, uh, the other thing that you and I both spoke about in the past was e-scooters, uh, which are yeah. also in, in dire need of regulation because a study has come from Oslo University in which it says that these are the very vehicles which are now actually even more dangerous than cycl- cyclists because and cycling because the people who use them are likely to be young men, uh, quite often using them after dark without a helmet and possibly intoxicated. Yes, of course. Well, they've actually fallen into the category of um, motorcycles and mopeds. So actually, they are legislated for, but the legislation is completely useless. So there is proper legislation in place, but what's the point of it if you don't know who's on them? So they've missed out the foundation, and the foundation is identification. Exactly right. And so what's the likelihood that this will actually happen? Because we do see an awful lot of this uh, government's intentions on the front pages of the papers, but then uh, six months later you're going, whatever happened to that? Yeah, well, I I, th- I think, I don't know what's going to happen to Grant Shapps in September. If he's in office, he's clearly going to go ahead with it, and he's urged his successor to do so. And, and I think this is something that's going to be picked up by the, the public and by the media, because everyone seems to think it's a sensible idea, other than the small minority of cyclists. Mm. Uh, and it's going to gather weight, gather momentum, and it will happen. I, I have said for a long, long time that this is going to happen. The sooner it happens, the safer our roads will be for everyone. And that just makes common sense, doesn't it? That's just a sensible thing to happen for everybody. Yes. Well, this is the thing. This is why I can't understand why anyone would be against it, because it, it clearly makes a, a fair uh, a fair playing field for everybody. And it protects everybody, because even if you are a cyclist, and even if you do think that you, you ought to have some kind of liberty that nobody else is afforded, surely if you've got children, you want them to be protected uh, by cyclists ramming down uh, the street the wrong way or going through red lights, uh, you know, putting themselves and other people in terrible danger. Yes, I think, you know, cycling used to be conducted by a minority when the roads were much quieter. It was a very different world, particularly since COVID. We've seen a massive increase in the number of cycles. Our roads are in a terrible state. Uh, and, we're, and, and, you know, in, in the cities, London, and other cities, well, that, that, that road space is being eaten up by cyclists. They're taking the lanes away, but they're not used that often. So that there's a friction, there's a resentment there. And there's an in- a sense of entitlement that cyclists seems to have mm. that, yes, they can use it. Um, they don't have to contribute and they don't have to be responsible. Um, and that's not a healthy attitude. They-, they need to adopt a different mindset and say, listen, we're all in this together. It's for everyone's yes. good. And you'll be delighted to know, as I am, that Paul in Wakefield concurs. He says, Mike, as a cyclist myself, I think regulation is long overdue. I daily see examples of bad and dangerous cycling, which gives us all a bad name. I don't believe it's everyone's right to ride a bicycle. I think people should take a test. If we're sharing the road with other vehicles, we should all have to live by the same rules. Couldn't have put it better myself. There we go. Amen. Yes, thank you very much indeed. Well, listen, uh, it's good to know that we finally got somewhere, Nick, uh, with our attempts to try and make the roads fairer for everybody. Nick Freeman there, author, commentator, criminal defence lawyer, of course, as well. He's spoken to many um, ministers in the past. Surely it makes perfect sense, does it not, for cyclists to have to uh, adhere to the same rules and regulations as everybody else. We changed the highway code recently to give cyclists even more rights. There are parts of the country now where you can't turn left because there's a cycle lane and you have to instead go straight on, turn right, turn right again and then come back around and come at the street you wanted to turn left on from the opposite side. There is an absolute war going on uh, in some of our cities against the motorist and it's got to stop. You know, the revenue which this government makes and every other government makes from cars, from petrol, uh, from fuel duty, from VAT, 
from the um, amount of money that people pay in tolls to go over certain roads. It's absolutely ridiculous. Road tax as well. Imagine where the government would be without all of that money if they didn't collect it. Imagine what would happen to the Treasury. They'd be about £50 billion worse off, maybe £100 billion worse off. Now it's time for the cyclists to take some responsibility and to be treated the exact same way as everybody else on the road. It makes perfect sense to me. I can't understand why anyone wouldn't want it. I want to hear from you. 0344 499 1000. This is Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. We've got lots going on today. We're going to be talking, of course, uh, into the last hour. Jamie Jenkins is going to join us. He's going to give us the lowdown and the rundown, indeed, uh, on the inflation figures this morning. They've been announced, of course, as running at 10.1%. Two-thirds of this is supposed to be down to housing, utilities, uh, road fuel costs and food. Uh, We've also got to talk about uh, the idea that Iceland uh, is apparently going to give you credit now uh, to buy your food groceries at their shop. Now, a lot of people think that's a great idea because it will give people uh, a little bit of relief if they haven't been able to afford to buy all the things that they need to buy it would be a good thing uh, if they could actually get their hands on some food to feed their families without having to pay for it at that particular moment however uh, it could be a time bomb uh, it could be putting people into a lot more debt than they need to be in so we'd like to hear from you uh, on that one as well 0344 499 1000 cb's not happy about the registration of cyclists uh, he says registration of bicycles what next yet another thing where the state will stick its nose into your private business how about the government concentrates on issuing passports first well surely if you think that uh, having registrations for bicycles is sticking their nose into your business giving you a passport is as well isn't it because you'd have to walk around with identity papers in order to get a passport and you'd have to show who you are in order to get a passport i don't see any earthly reason why you would not want to register bicycles and register cyclists in the same way that you register car drivers van drivers lorry drivers motorcyclists and everybody else who uses the road why wouldn't you it seems madness not to, doesn't it? 0344 499 uh, How about this from uh, Mike, who says, Mike, when walking in a park on a towpath or a disused road, it's terrifying when someone comes silently flying past you at the speed on a bike or an e-scooter, especially if they can see you have a dog that might change direction in a split second. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. People are so reckless on these machines. It's ridiculous. They need to be regulated. It's simple as that. Why wouldn't you want it? That's my question. Let's talk now, though, about something completely different. Des Collins is a senior partner at Collins Solicitors. Uh, they've been representing people uh, who were um, victims of the contaminated blood scandal uh, from many, many years ago. Uh, they represent 1,500 victims of the scandal. But finally, I think they managed to get some good news for them. Des, a very good morning to you. Good morning. Thanks very much indeed for uh, talking to us. Tell us a little bit about the case, first of all, Des. How long has this been running um, and have you now finally got something somewhere where you wanted to go? It's somewhere where we want to go. You've got it right there. Uh, We've been uh, acting on this for the best part of five or six years, but the case has been going on one way or another for 40 years. Uh, There have been several full storms at several points where the victims thought they were about to get a breakthrough and each time um, it just hasn't happened. Mm. Now, this morning, with the press release from the uh, Cabinet Office, um, yes, it looks like we have got a breakthrough, but when you look at the small print, the devil is always going to be in the detail. And without wishing to be unnecessarily, I hope, negative about it, what we have is a situation whereby... um, 
a number of very, very deserving victims have been chosen to receive interim payments, but the presentation by the Cabinet Office is such that you would you could be fooled into thinking that everyone's going to get an interim payment. Yeah. Now, what we have is a situation whereby, as you mentioned, we act for about 1,500 people. I'd say about a third of those people will receive an interim payment, and that is good news. We must never forget that. But the fact that the other two-thirds will not, and the excuses or otherwise which have been provided for that non-payment, um, are causing a lot of grief to the, the people who are not receiving an interim payment mm. this morning. No, of course. And, um, and many people, of course, have lost loved ones because of this contamination, uh, people who got hepatitis, people who got HIV. Um, and some of those relatives of those victims are saying, you know, nobody's taking any account of their loss, if you like. That, that's that's precisely so. I mean, what the people who have been singled out are the, uh, the the victims who are still alive and the widows of those victims who have died. The primarily, but not exclusively, the people who have been missed out of this round are the parents who've lost children and the children who have lost parents. Now we put that position to the. Uh, public inquiry last month um, it didn't find favour with public inquiry. The recommendation for, from Sir Brian Langstaff to the Cabinet Office was to restrict the, uh, the compensation and interim payments uh, as has been seen by the Cabinet Office statement this morning. Mm. It doesn't mean that nothing will ever happen, but when you've been living with this for 40 years and you've seen false dawn after false dawn, and more particularly this morning, where you read the Cabinet Office statement, it doesn't actually mention the people who have not received uh, uh, interim payments. Mm. It's almost as if they've been airbrushed out of existence. And primarily what these people have fought for for 40 years is recognition. What they see this morning is a complete absence of recognition. Yes. And have there, has there ever been a satisfactory explanation in, in your view? I mean, we all know what happened, that blood products were being bought from overseas, a lot of them from America, where people were being paid to, to give blood. Many of them weren't even tested for, for HIV or for hepatitis or anything. Um, but has anybody actually explained how it was possible that that could have happened and, and, and why they're going to ensure it never happens again? Uh, that evidence has been examined in great detail by the public inquiry um, over the past three years. Mm. It's heard it's been going on for longer than that, but over the past three years in particular, it's heard evidence as to how all this slipped through the um, slipped through the net, as it were. What is possibly more worrying than how it happened is how it happened to be covered up when it had happened, mm. and that is the issue which concerns. At the inquiry, that's the issue which concerns the victims, that you have a situation where mistakes happen. They're awful. They shouldn't happen. We all know that. But once you've made that mistake, own up to it and make sure it doesn't happen again. If you cover it up, mm. then you are more likely to have a repetition of history. And that's what the inquiry is trying to ensure doesn't happen right. on this occasion. But yes, um, it's the covering up of the issue which is more important, I think. No, of course. And the payments, they say, will hopefully be made as quickly as possible, hopefully by October. What's what's the next or move for, for, from, from your perspective? From our perspective, we will push the um, we will push the cabinet office to make sure that that, um, that 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 stop date at the end of October is 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 is, is adhered to. And in particular, we will push the Cabinet Office to provide an explanation for 
how these payments are going to be made and on what basis they're going to be made. That has not been provided to the public or to the victims at the moment. And if someone comes up to you in the street and says, hey, buddy, would you like £100,000? The first thing you're going to say is, well, are there any strings? Mm. Does it? So in, to, to use that, that example, I mean, it's very important that the victims know if they take this money, are they going to be uh, prevented from seeking other compensation mm. in due course? What does it represent? How soon will it be paid? And um, if they are going to receive any further money, give us an indication of how much that's likely to be. Because yeah. they will need to know whether they should put this in a nest egg for the grandchildren very often or whether they go on that long hope for world cruise because another hundred is going to come in next month next year mm. we don't know and that information should be provided to the victims immediately yes well thank goodness something at least has, has happened and and there's uh, all credit to you for uh, for fighting on their behalf there's collins their senior partner uh, collins solicitors who represents um, an awful lot of victims of this particular blood poisoning scandal because that's what it was let's face it uh, some people now are going to be getting a hundred thousand pounds in payment but yet still um some um kind of details of all of that to be ironed out we'll bring you those as and when uh, we find out chris says this isn't it interesting how cyclists are not at all happy about potentially being identifiable on the roads it's almost as if they don't want to be held to account for their bad behavior all motorists want is a level playing field well exactly I think that makes a very good point. Chris, thank you very much indeed. Coming up, we'll take your calls, 0344 499 1000. Uh, we'll take them on cycling. We'll take them also on inflation and whether uh, you would want to be given credit to buy food. Uh, this is Talk TV. On DAB+, Plus, on the app, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Much more of your calls to come. Uh, also, of course, uh, we're coming up to one o'clock. Ian Collins will be here. Uh, he was um, with us on the talk last night. I'll be back on the talk tonight uh, from 9pm. Uh, how about this from uh, somebody who sent in a picture, actually? Perfect example yesterday, a one-way street. Can you guess which one doesn't care? When he turns left down the hill, he was going the wrong way along the street, then turns down another one-way street the wrong way. Um, well, yeah, uh, you can guess, can't you, who's doing that? You see so many cyclists just disobeying the traffic laws of this country, and they don't seem to care. And there's a reason why they don't seem to care. The reason why is because they don't have to suffer the consequences of their actions, because no matter what you do on a bike, nobody but nobody will ever know who you are and where you live and where your uh, license is registered to, because you don't have a license. And it's as simple, surely, as making sure that everybody who cycles drives, uh, rides on the road in any way, shape or form, is registered in some way, shape or form, so if something does go wrong, you know who they are. It's not difficult, is it? 0344 499 1000. Let's talk now uh, to Reem Ibrahim, political commentator, because it turns out um, that up in Scotland, Dundee to be precise, uh, where they've got one of the biggest heroin problems in Western Europe, they've decided to appoint a man as a period dignity officer. Scotland has been one of the first countries, I think, in the world uh, to make it possible for people to uh, say that they can't afford uh, to get period products. So therefore, they need to get help from the state in order to do so. Uh, They've now appointed the first period dignity officer. I'm not really even sure what that job means. Let's find out. Reem, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Good morning. Thank you for having me on, Mike. Not Um, not at all. I mean, it's a bit of a weird uh, story, this, isn't it? No, 
it is, absolutely. I, I mean, whether you think that period products should be made free from the state is, 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 a, is completely up for debate. But the fact that this man, who is himself never experienced a period, is now going to start talking about period products and about menopause and about women's issues, I think that, look, having this sort of representation is a good first step. But having a, a man do it? I mean, do we know what a man is? Does he identify well, as a <laughs> Well, that's a very good question. I mean, this is the problem, isn't it? When you start going down these rabbit holes, you sort of encounter all sorts of strange obstacles and you know for example i don't even know really what his job is going to be i'm told he's going to sort of go into schools and 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 promote um, period dignity whatever that is um he's also apparently going to be uh in a position to go to different um sort of companies perhaps and talk to different groups but it seems to me to be a pretty easy job uh, to get paid thirty-six thousand pounds of public money for it does, absolutely. And that seems to be a common occurrence with government where we spend extreme amounts of money on really nonsensical jobs. I mean, look, I do think that this job is important. I think that spreading awareness is important. And I think that the idea behind appointing a man was that it would reduce the stigma. I think that that's completely incorrect. I mean, women are the people that are actually affected by periods. We're actually people that experience it. The fact that this man is now parading around schools explaining to us what a period is and how we're going to deal with it ourselves, I just think is really really silly yeah and i imagine as a young woman you know of say i don't know 13 14 years of age the last thing you want is to talk about your period to a bloke Absolutely. I remember being that age and I was absolutely petrified to speak about it to even my own family, let alone right. this strange man, the government official coming into schools and telling us what to do. And what's his qualification for the job, by the way? Because I think he's, his previous job was as some kind of a sports uh, trainer or something, right? Yeah, absolutely. These sorts of people sort of conflict sports science with these sort of um, periods and sort of menstrual cycle and women's health. I think that they're very separate things um, just because you're able to sort of talk about sports science and um, and your physical health doesn't necessarily mean that you actually understand what the experiences of women are every single day. Mm. No, exactly right. And Scotland is, I think, one of the, if not the first country in the world to recognise what they're calling period poverty. Is that really a thing, though? I think that when you look at the stats, there are certainly women that can't afford period products themselves. I do believe that there are a lot of stores that say, you know, if, if a woman is sort of caught stealing period products, they won't, you know, persecute them. So there are sort of um, a, a lot of sort of philanthropic people that, that will support with that. Um, I personally don't think that the state should be providing free period products for everybody. I think that that's a waste of taxpayer money, especially when most people can afford it. Uh, I also think that there's a lot of choice. You know, we have the free market. We have different choices we've got menstrual cups tampons sanitary towels there is so much choice out there and that choice shouldn't be provided by the government it should be provided yeah. by the market because we're consumers at the end of the day just as it is a necessity but just like food is a necessity yeah. we shop in the market for it well that's the thing i mean you know i'm all uh, for, for helping those people who are disadvantaged but up to a point yeah. you know because <clears throat> otherwise you'll be buying everything for them. you know we can't afford a car have a car you know you can't afford yeah. uh, a <laughs> toothbrush car. yeah you can't afford a toothbrush here's a free toothbrush you know, you can't just keep giving free stuff to people because it means that they never then learn about the value of anything. Completely agree, but also it's not free. We're still paying for it in right. taxpayer money. We're paying, you know, we've got the highest tax burden in 70 years. We're paying extortion amounts of tax. And I think that spending things like, on, spending money on things like this is, um, I think it has, you know, sort of the good intentions behind it, but actually, in effect, it isn't going to be helping many people. No, I think that's absolutely right. And I mean, is this likely to become a thing across Scotland then? I mean, this is Dundee Council. 
Um, as I said, they've got one of the worst records on heroin and, and, and drug abuse, I think, in Western Europe, if not the world. Don't you think they've got more important things to worry about? Definitely. And I don't, I don't necessarily think that um, we have to prioritise um, sort of drug deaths over period poverty if it is a particular issue. Um, my argument is that it actually isn't necessarily an issue across the country. This isn't something that we need, sorry, across Scotland. This isn't something that we need to be throwing taxpayer money into. I think that sort of breaking the stigma and having these sort of open conversations about things like menopause and things like how the menstrual cycle works so that men can also understand it. I think that those things are important, but you're absolutely right. You know, the SNP government hasn't got a great track record and Nicola Sturgeon seems to think that independence will solve every single yeah. issue under the sun. So I think it's sort of one of those things where, yes, it's an issue. Yes, it's something we can talk about. But chucking so much money at it and employing a man to talk about periods, I think, you know, there are so many issues with this. And yes, there are so many other issues that Scotland has to deal with. I don't think that this is really a good, re a good use of resources. Yes. Well, I suppose we'll watch and see how it all goes. Um, yeah. Because I was talking about this on uh, the talk last night and I was saying, you know, what does this guy's daily workload look like? You know, does he walk into an office? Does he work from home? Does he go into some place and answer his emails? I mean, I'm, I'm really struggling to work out what he actually does for eight hours a day. Yeah, I mean, I don't think we really know yet because he was just recently appointed. I think it'll be really interesting to see what the actual output is. I think that a lot of us will have our eyes on him and really trying to see what sort of policies they come out with and what yeah. sort of advocacy they do. I think it'll be quite odd seeing him walk around schools, you know, telling young girls about periods. But there we go. Yeah, I think it's going to be a strange old uh, year up in Dundee, I have to say. Reem, great to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Reem Ibrahim, uh, political commentator there on Dundee Council's decision uh, to basically appoint, first of all, to appoint a period dignity officer in the first place and then to appoint a man. Now, I know that people are saying, yeah, but there's plenty of gynaecologists who are men. Well, yes, but this is not uh, a doctoral job. This is not a medical job. This is a sort of PR job, it seems to me. And as I've said, um, people have accused Dundee Council of trying to mansplain uh, which is a terrible word, which I really don't like to use, um, menstruation to young girls. I mean, it seems a bit odd to me, to be honest. It just seems like a very odd job to appoint somebody to do. And quite frankly, as I've said before, it's all very well giving people money. It's all very well helping people out with benefits, and the benefit system is there to help people who don't have enough money. But if you continue to give people free stuff, and as Reem quite rightly pointed out, it's not actually free uh, because somebody's paying for it, i.e. you and I, they're never going to get used to actually the idea of achievement. They're never going to go, well, do you know what? There was a time when I didn't have any money. Now I've got a really good job or I've got a better job, but now I've got some money. So now I can afford to buy the things I couldn't previously afford to buy. If you keep giving them stuff that they can't afford to buy, they'll never need to get a better job and to better themselves in order to buy that stuff. It just seems mad to me, doesn't it? 0344 499 1000. Charles uh, is here. He's in Darlington. Hello, Charles. Good morning, Mike. How are you? Very well, sir. What can I do for you? I have a question for you. What sort of bloke... I'm, I'm going to make an assumption here. I'm going to make an assumption that this guy who got this period... What's it, job? Period dignity officer. Yeah, I'm sure they didn't go out hunting for him. So I'd like to know what kind of man would apply mm. for that job yes. and take interviews for that job yeah. and all the rest of it. Yeah. Now, I'm, I'm a retired science teacher. Right. I taught uh, physics, chemistry and biology. So I, I do know pretty well... How, how, and I have three daughters, so yes. I know how women's bodies work. Yes. But I would never have even thought of applying for a job no. like that. Well, like I say, I mean, I was talking to, to some people, uh, some of them were women, in fact, last night, about this whole issue. Um, and they all said the last thing that I would have wanted when I was a teenage girl 
just started menstruating would be to talk to some bloke about it. Actually, I was watching you on telly, yeah. Oh, there you go. So I'm repeating myself. But you know what I mean? I mean, it's, it's a bit yeah, creepy, actually, isn't are, it? It's fine. Yeah, I'm agreeing with you. Absolutely. I cannot understand. I mean, I'm sorry. I don't know the bloke, but I think you've got to be some kind of person that, that yes. to, to put in an application, see this little job advertised and think, oh, I'll go for that. Yes. Sounds like a job for me. It does. Know? Well, I mean, it's pretty well paid. 36 grand a year. I mean, I've been up in Dundee. That gets you quite a lot of um, Dundee cake, I think. Yeah, but you still, like I say, it's still a job that I can't imagine any or many men looking at and saying, oh, yeah, I'll go for that. That's yeah. the career line for me. I know. I no, you're quite right. You, you raise a very good point. Thank you very much indeed, Charles, there uh, in Darlington. Here's a good one from uh, to G. Is having a man employed as a period czar any different to having Nadim Zahawi as chancellor? He hasn't got any qualifications either. <laughs> That's not bad. Don't mind that at all. Uh, but here's the other thing. Uh, uh, there's one from, uh, hello, Mike, says uh, this texter, Sally in London. I wonder how the male periods are of Scotland will go about approaching those women uh, in certain cultures who cannot talk directly to a man. This is the case in some faiths, and in my job, I often had to persuade one of these ladies to see a male doctor for their cancer, um, but they did have to have a separation of sexes. Has Scotland chosen to ignore those cultural sensitivities? A very good question. I mean, there's all sorts of reasons why young women might not want to talk to a man about all of those things, you know? It just really is a very, very odd situation indeed. And it just shows you really uh, where what is going on in Scotland is often worth peering into down the right end of a telescope because there are some very strange policies being made up there um, and sometimes they sort of go under the radar and nobody really understands what is going on. So we'll watch it carefully. We'll see whether any other councils actually decide to waste public money doing it. You might not think it is a waste. I happen to think it is. I don't think anybody needs a period dignity officer. I'm sorry. It's a waste of time and a waste of money. Dundee, you've got better things to do. Uh, this is Talk TV. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB, online, or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.